Does former President Donald Trump know and does he care that the statements he'd made undermining the integrity of the 2020 election run the risk of undermining the core of American democracy? Is election denialism bigger than Trump's hold over the GOP? What should the Republicans, Democrats, the press, and others do to counter concerns about threats to free elections in the United States? On Season 4, Episode 3 of the ELB Podcast, we speak with New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman, author of the new book, Confidence Man. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UCLA School of Law and the Election Law Blog. Today's episode is a recording of an interview I recorded for the Safeguarding Democracy Project's webinar series with New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman. It was recorded on October 27, 2022, on the topic of Trump, Trumpism, and the threats to American democracy. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So your book is a, is a, a tour de force that presents a complicated psychological picture of Donald Trump, both before and during his presidency. I was struck where near the end of the book, uh, you talked about how so many people close to you, since you follow him so intimately, uh, come to you to ask you to decipher his meaning and his intent. Uh, I've done that to you. I've sent you direct messages. Well, you know, what's going on? And you say that no one really knows him and that trying to read his mind is impossible. Uh, it made me recall when uh, we had an exchange a few years ago, and, and you had made a reference, which also appears in your book, to uh, Chauncey Gardner, the uh, Peter Sellers character in the in the book, uh, being there. Um, you point the similarities and also the differences with this character whose mundane statements got interpreted as statements of deep truth. So I want to generally resist putting you in the position of psychiatrist of Donald Trump, but I do want to start with one question along these lines that I can't resist, which is, does Trump know and does he care that the statements he's made about the integrity of the 2020 election, one count had him making 400 statements undermining the integrity of the election on Twitter in just the three weeks after the election. Does he know that he's running the risk of undermining the core of American democracy, this idea of loser's consent, that a democracy depends on losers agreeing the election was fair, uh, licking their wounds and agreeing to fight another day? I don't think that it's been explained to him that way. And to the extent that that was studied in school, I don't think there was anything he absorbed. Uh, and I don't think he cares, Rick. I mean, that's, you know, the bottom line is this goes to the statement you were making before about how I talk in the book about being asked to decode him and the reality being that often he is just opaque, um, you know, leaving people reading meaning into a reaction. I don't know that it matters if he knows or not. Um, he clearly has, is aware that there is a lot of coverage criticizing what he's saying. He's aware that what he is saying has been described as a lie. Um, he, you know, sent a letter, to, had a lawyer send a letter to CNN threatening, actually, I think filed a defamation action uh, over the use of the term big lie. So I don't think it's unknown to him that what he's saying is problematic, whether it goes to whether he understands the fact that it goes to a core principle of U.S. democracy, which is a, a buy in to the system. I don't know that it's ever been explained to him that way. But again, he doesn't care. He doesn't he not only doesn't really believe that systems should exist, but he doesn't believe they should apply to him. There was reporting this week um, of a, I think it was a, from a documentary uh, of a conversation Trump mm -hmm. was having with Blake Masters, the mm -hmm. uh, U.S. Senate candidate, the Republican Senate candidate in Arizona, mm -hmm. who had backed off some of the election denialism. And Trump was saying, uh, you know, you shouldn't back off. This is what is, uh, you know, getting Carrie Lake support. So do you think he sees this solely in 
political terms, you know, my, my, my initial uh, understanding was, or, you know, or, or, or guess was that this was more about, you know, psychologically responding to having lost an election by 7 million votes in the popular vote and losing the electoral college vote, you know, here's an explanation for it. But it's that, that, that seemed like it was pretty calculating. Well, and I write about this and, you know, or I, I describe this in the book, but, you know, he's not capable of strategic thinking, but he is very calculating moment to moment. Um, you know, one of the things that Bill Barr told people when uh, he had left the White House was that he came to see in the final months that Trump was more calculating um, than he, not, I don't just mean after the election, but just in, in his time there, that Trump was more calculating than people understood uh, or realized. And so that goes to what you just asked. I mean, you know, it, it isn't just about self-soothing. It's also about convincing and selling other people uh, on what he believes to be true or wants to be true. Uh, and that's and that's what you're seeing right now. Yeah, one of the things that your book reminded me of was that I remembered that, that Trump had done this with Hillary Clinton. Uh, yes. He gave an interview, um, I think it was to David Muir of ABC News right after the election, where he said that three to five million non-citizens had voted and um, all for all of them for Hillary Clinton, you know, to kind of make up for that deficit. But he did it with Ted Cruz. Um, back in the that this is the part I had, had forgotten during the 2016 presidential nomination contest. So do you see this as, you know, kind of the same kind of conspiracism um, yes. that, you know, explains, you know, his embrace of birtherism or, or is there something else? So I think it's two things. I mean, I think it's yes, I do think he's obviously very conspiracy minded. And, you know, we've seen that over and over again. I do think that he is a big believer in what Eric Erickson once described to me as, you know, the hidden hand. You know, the Trump was was giving into the idea. I did a story with Alex Burns, my former colleague, in February 2016, I think, about how Trump was really giving rise to conspiracy theories. And Eric Erickson had this line that he's giving into the idea that there's a hidden hand behind everything. And of course, if that's the case, then, you know, people don't have to be responsible for certain things. Um, and so I, I think that's a part of it, but I also think a part of it is that to the extent that he accepts that systems exist, he thinks all systems are corrupt. You know, I mean, I, I have a, a line in the book about how he gave this interview to the Washington Times in the mid-1990s when he was trying to pitch himself as financially on the rise again. He really wasn't yet, but that's what he was selling. And he described himself as seeing himself as a very honest guy stationed in a very corrupt world. And that's actually true, how he views all of this. You know, I mean, remember, he has this, this briefing with the intel chiefs after their report on Russian interference in the election, and they, they come to brief him, ironically, on January 6th, 2017. So his presidency was kind of bookended by the date January 6th. But he starts lecturing Brennan about how, the CIA chief, about how anyone will say anything if you pay them enough. And he's talking about human informants. And I think that really is his view. And so some of this is, is a way to tell people he couldn't really lose. And some of this is that he believes that everything is corrupt. And, you know, it might be true if he just says it. So I want to move from Trump to the Trump campaign or the Trump orbit uh, a little bit and ask you about what was going on just before the election takes place. And then in the months after, culminating with January 6th, sure. was there a strategy? What was the strategy in terms of the you know, we, we, you know, we all have the, remember these images of Rudy Giuliani in front of the uh, Four Seasons Total Landscaping with the right. the um, 
uh, well, the was, coming the down the was a few weeks later, but yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. But, uh, you know, the, it kind of seemed bumbling. So was this the product of internal struggle over what to do or, you know, how, how could you describe those weeks, those very important weeks in, in our democracy? Yeah, I think so. I think initially, I, I think a couple of things, and I think this actually gets lost, you know, the degree to which his sons were urging everyone to keep fighting right after November 3rd, the election, I think gets forgotten. And they were exerting a lot of public pressure on Republicans to support Trump. And people felt intimidated into doing it. They were doing that at the time when the campaign's actual advisors were looking at legal challenges, which is a very standard thing in our process, uh, as you know better than anybody. But it became clear by the end of the week that those legal challenges were not going to have much of a chance. And Trump was told that, and he decided to press ahead anyway by any means necessary. And and the by any means necessary was deeply chaotic. It was reaching for whatever he could find that that might help him get what he wanted, which was to stay in office. And, uh, you know, if you look at the the lawyering, which is something, you know, I looked closely at during that period, yeah. um, aside from Clayda Mitchell, you know, who's yeah. on the infamous Raffensperger call yep. about finding those votes in Georgia, um, most of the top tier lawyers on the Republican side who do election stuff stayed away. Yes. Was that for lack of trying or was that because uh, they didn't want to be part of what was seen as a, a weak legal case? I think it was all of the above. I mean, I think it was that people didn't people were concerned about the direction it was taking. Um, Giuliani was making statements that he then wasn't including in court filings um, related to fraud in particular. Uh, they didn't respect Giuliani. A lot of the people around Trump believe Giuliani had gotten Trump impeached once before. I don't think that's entirely fair, by the way. Donald Trump's a grown man. And he got himself impeached. Um, but Giuliani was certainly a big factor. And so I think it was all of the above. We did see, uh, I think it was last week, some of the John Eastman, John Eastman, a, a mm-hmm. former law professor, one of Trump's lawyers during this period. Uh, we saw some released emails that are part of the January 6th committee's attempt to, to get some of these documents that Eastman flags for Trump that he's making claims about dead people voting in Georgia that can't be backed up yep. and maybe he shouldn't sign the verification. And then he goes ahead and signs it anyway. Yep. Was he not concerned about legal ramifications of doing so? Uh, I mean, uh, he's being warned by his lawyers. Yeah, he was in a, he, uh, look, an, an old friend of Trump's once said to me that Trump likes lawyers who will do anything. And, you know, even here to your point, the main lawyer goading him on still was saying, don't do this. Usually Trump is a little more self-protective in legal matters than he was with this. And so I attribute it to he has other people sign things and tries to avoid doing it himself. I have to assume that it was simply that he had just decided he had nothing to lose anymore. I mean, he he, he was he was acting uh, deeply irrationally. Would you give that same explanation for what went on with holding on to the Mar-a-Lago documents? Uh, that deciding that he had nothing left to lose? Is that what you mean? Yes, or that he was just acting irrationally and that you can't, uh, think, you know, uh, no, I mean, I it's, hard I to, it's hard to see what the benefit of holding on to these documents was for him. Other I don't, than I don't kind of trophy. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to go that deep. I don't know. Um, I think it's uh, I can see him having taken this because he just likes to take things initially. And I do think that it could have been as a trophy. I think it also could have been as leverage in some way or another. 
uh, I don't know why he did it. And I really don't know why he wouldn't give them back. <laughs> I think that's the bigger issue. Uh, but I, I, but I see this is different than signing a document that he was warned not to do. Yeah. So, you know, we started talking about Trump and then Trump's orbit. I want to turn to the broader Republican Party and ask you, what role do you think election denialism plays in the current Republican Party? I recall a few months ago, a Republican incumbent in Michigan, uh, uh, Peter Mayer, I think Mayer is how you pronounce his last name, Mayor. Yeah. Uh, who said that uh, he was told he had to back the claim of that the election was stolen. He didn't have to believe it. He just had to say he believed it. So, you know, what role does electionism play in the current Republican Party? Do are are people in the elite level believing this stuff? And you know, regardless of that, you know, what what is the reason that this has become kind of one of the organizing principles? If you look everywhere from Pennsylvania to Arizona, this is you know the stories every day coming out of you know, vigilantes at the polls and you know uh, new lawsuits being filed, hand counts of ballots being held because- in Nevada because Trump is encouraging it and continuing it. And he's still the leader of the party and he's using repetition, which he talked about in his interview with me, that he's something that he uses, um, which is is obvious that he does that, but it was interesting to hear him talking about it. And people have become afraid of the power and the durable power that Trump has with the Republican voting base. And so they go along with it. And there's a, to the point of that base, Trump is selling something. There's a market for it. There's a market for this with the Republican electorate. If there wasn't, none of these people would be doing it. So um, I don't know that it's something that these folks actually believe, although it's obviously a lot easier to say someone stole it from me than, you know, I didn't perform very well. Um, And I think that that goes back to Eric Erickson's point about a hidden hand. If a hidden hand does it work, then you're absolved of responsibility. But I think there are a lot of people saying things that I, you know, in some cases cannot imagine they believe. And so uh, how long that goes on, I think is an open question. Mike Pence, Liz Cheney, Mm -hmm. is there a role for them in politics today? Is there a lane, I guess is how, you know, we think about it. Um, I think there's a role for Mike Pence in the Republican Party because he hasn't gone nuclear on Donald Trump. Um, I think there's not a role for Liz Cheney in the Republican Party because she has. And I think that Donald Trump turns everything into an up-down referendum on himself, and he has turned the entire Republican Party into that. Now, I don't know what Pence's future is as a leader in the Republican Party, and I think that's you know going to be determined by the uh, primaries if he runs. But I don't think that there's a place right now in the party for people who are deeply oppositional with Donald Trump, no. Well, I, I look to someone like Evan McMullen in uh, Utah trying to run as an independent. Now, Utah is a you know, strange case because sometimes you have an independent who runs, who siphons votes away from the Republican, lets the Democrat win. You know, sometimes an independent can win, uh, rarely, right. but can win. Right. Um, can you see Liz Cheney running for president trying to affect, in 2024, if Trump runs? trying to not necessarily win the race, but siphon off enough Republican votes for people who couldn't stomach voting for Joe Biden or another Democrat as a, you know, as a way of being a, an intentional spoiler, I guess. I, I, I can. The problem with trying to be an intentional spoiler is you can be an unintentional spoiler, right? It's, you know, she could draw and most likely would from the Republican party, but, you know, she could also draw independence. She could draw Democrats, if she if she were running as an independent, if she ran in the Republican primaries and it was a crowded enough field, 
maybe. I just think that people who are looking to damage Donald Trump as a candidate are probably going to have to do it within Donald Trump's own lane. And that's a very small group of people. So that's like a DeSantis. Yeah. It, and maybe. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very hesitant to project that DeSantis is, is you know, quote unquote, the one, because having seen a little more of him recently, I mean, he, he's on track at the moment if the polls are right. And, you know, Lord knows if they are, but he certainly seems like he is the likely winner by a, a decent margin in his reelect. But how that rolls into a national stage is a real open question. So I want to focus now on January 6th uh, mm-hmm. and, and the aftermath. First, you know, kind of a basic question. Why do you think Trump's attempt to overturn the election failed? How, how would you describe what happened? And the reason I'm asking this in particular is uh, because I'm thinking ahead to 2024. Is, is what happened in 2020, the system held, however we describe that, yep. likely to happen again in 2024? I think that whatever happens in 2024 is not going to look the same as it did in 2020. So I don't know. We have seen that um, the effort to to strengthen the Electoral Count Act so that the vice president isn't in the role that Mike Pence was, but you still have this situation where lawmakers are going to have to vote and certify. And to your point, there are a lot of lawmakers, future lawmakers getting elected likely in their districts because these are very conservative districts who have questioned the 2020 election. And so we don't know what it's going to look like. I don't think the next two years are going to be smooth. I, I'm just loath to predict what that means. And just turning to you know to, to the the basic question of why the attempt to overturn the election failed in 2020, how would you describe? That? Um, well, I mean, it depends on which attempt you're talking about. <laughs> they all failed, right? I mean, there were multiple. If you're talking about specifically the certification of the electoral college, um, that was going to fail anyway, uh, and Mike Pence was not going to do what Trump wanted. And then the riot ensured that there was going to be a very smooth vote after that. Whereas there was not a smooth process heading into the riot. Every other effort failed because either the courts wouldn't go along with it. Um, Supreme Court wouldn't hear the challenges. And and this, I think, is a little more of what you're asking. Specific appointees at the Justice Department and the White House Council made very clear to Trump that they were going to quit en masse if he moved ahead trying to use the DOJ to keep himself in power, which, as we've heard from the House Select Committee, he tried doing over and over and over and over again. And if he is in power next time, he might choose better in terms of finding loyalists than... Well, you know, he, he, it did, that is going to get a lot into your question about what 2024 is going to look like. That look, that's going to depend a lot on what happens in 2024 with the Senate, right? I mean, if, if Republicans make gains this cycle, which they might, I don't know that the Senate map is as, is as uh, uh, felicitous for Republicans as the House map is right now, but we're going to find out. But let's say they make a couple of gains this year, and then they make a couple of more in 2024, they have a much bigger margin. And so that's the difference maybe between getting a, a Cash Patel confirmed for some job or not. And then the people who don't get confirmed, he will just put in the White House to do certain jobs. But, but the roles that you're talking about are largely Senate confirmed. White House counsel's not, obviously. You know, we're gonna we're gonna see what that looks like. And of course, some of the senators, we might not have a an increase in the number of Republican senators, but their character would be different. So a Blake Masters, uh, you know, yep. be very different, or uh, a JD Vance compared. Uh, to yeah, a I just, I, but I do think that what people are willing to say on their way in to an election might be different than what they say on the other side. So we'll see. 
Well, that kind of uh, melds into my next question, which is how worried are you about the threat to free and fair elections in 2024, both in terms of what Trump might do directly, but also the kind of election denialism leading to a fomenting of potential violence and a kind of system breakdown beyond which we saw in 2020. I think what what Trump's ability to impact is going to matter, depend on whether he's back on Twitter and whether he's the nominee and how much coverage he's getting. He's 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 the leader of the party until there is another nominee, but he is not the president. And so I, I think that he is talked about as if he still is the president and he's not. So I think that's sort of important to bear in mind. Look, I think that when people say often enough, this is rigged, this is fake, don't trust mail-in ballots, I think it's very destabilizing. I think we're clearly seeing that. And I think then, particularly in places like Arizona, we're seeing the rise of the watchers, right? The the people who are trying to let voters know that they're being watched. And that, I think, is a big threat. Okay, so we've talked kind of Trump and then his orbit and then the Republican Party. I want to turn to other actors. Uh, first, the Democratic Party and then the press. So first, how do you think Democrats have handled threats to democracy from Trump? Is there something they should have done differently? done better? It's a good question. And it's it's a hard one to give an answer to that's accepted as thoughtful as opposed to, I think that I don't think that the, the current uh, political discourse allows for a lot of nuance, but I'll try one. Um, I think Democrats really struggled throughout the Trump presidency, both with trying to articulate to voters why Trump's policies were problematic for them directly. And an example I would point to on that one was, and I'm, I'm not saying he is a problem for them directly, I'm saying that's a message Democrats could have used, is Trump pushed through a massive tax cut for the rich. That was not the central messaging force for Democrats in 2018. Now, 2018 was obviously a good midterms year for Democrats, but it was mostly because Trump had so alienated suburban women in particular. There were probably other points that they could make, but that would have required not describing him as a threat to democracy. However, I don't think that is something Democrats have done particularly consistently. I think you either think you, you, the collective they either think he really is a national emergency or they don't. And if he's a national emergency, then a speech every six months from the president probably doesn't really capture that for voters. There's a lot of complaining about the press, which I suspect is going to be your next question. And God, I don't, I don't know, Rick. I, I think that the media coverage is pretty focused on the idea that uh, there's a lot of election denialism and um, that there are a lot of threats. I think that the, I think there are stories about it almost every day in every in every major paper. So I think the press is consistently talking about it. I think that if Democrats think it should be an issue that's more top of mind for voters, then they need to find a way to make it more top of mind for voters. Yeah, well, I mean, there was this moment where Democrats were supporting candidates like Doug Mastriano and the Republican right. candidate for um, a governor in Pennsylvania because they thought he and they thought rightly that he'd be a uh, a weaker general election candidate. It seems to me that's playing with fire. Although I think uh, Jonathan Bernstein has a column today where he says, "Oh, Democrats were really smart to do that." Uh, you know, I think you know when but you that's a very, that's a standard political trick. That's that was that's been used for years. That was used by Harry Reid with Sharon Angle. That was used by Claire McCaskill. That's not innovative. That's um, and it been and it's 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 fine if that's what you want to do. But you also have to understand that it's hard for voters to you know sort of absorb that jujitsu um, and and then hear. But they're really a threat, you see. I think that's complicated. 
Yeah, well, I guess the difference between a Sharon Ingle or and a Doug Mastriano is just the level at which they're willing to call democracy into question. And, you know, well, I, I, I would I certainly draw that, a line. I, think that go, I guess that goes to your point, right? That like, that's what makes it more problematic. All right, so I want to turn to the press for a few minutes. Some have suggested that media coverage of Trump has ultimately served to undermine democracy. Do you agree? And regardless, would you in hindsight suggest changes to future media coverage of Trump. And uh, when you answer that, I want you to think about both written press and also, you know, I remember CNN was criticized a lot for carrying the Trump rallies live. Uh, and then they kind of cut back on that. Yeah, I don't. So I got to tell you, um, I I don't think that the press coverage of Trump is, I, I just I just don't share that view uh, that, 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 that there's a, a correlation. Um, He's a former, he was a president and he's a former president. And I don't think that the U.S. press can responsibly ignore, ignore him. I think that that is a mistake. I think that the press needs to contextualize him and what he's saying. And I think the press has been, to my point earlier. I think where there is significant criticism of the press to be applied is the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where he was myth making about himself and building this artifice you know, that, that is what carried him through as a candidate, frankly. Um, as for the rally coverage, you know, I know that there's been a lot of, a lot of criticism of that. And I, I think that it's certainly crowded out attention that other candidates were getting. There's no question about that. Although he was so well known at that point that, you know, I don't know how much more that mattered. I am of the view, Rick, and, and I, I think I'm in a minority on this, but I actually am in favor of unfiltered Trump because the process of, of news reporting for a newspaper tends to benefit him because we take the, we take a quote and it's the quote that makes the most sense in the story as opposed to the 800 other quotes that he gives that contradict what he had said before. And so I think there's an argument to be made that those rallies, you know, if you listen to them, he did not exactly sound, you know, coherent, uh, you know, or consistent or, you know, what have you. On the other hand, he wasn't being fact-checked while he was saying all these things. And so I think the press is actually doing pretty well uh, at the moment. I, I just don't know what it looks like when he is a nominee, um, it, you know, if he's a nominee, excuse me, and uh, and if he's a candidate and if he wins again. I think it's less that, you know, is is the does the press need to reevaluate and more do readers need to understand that we're going to cover a nominee and a president? Because that's that's just the reality. Uh, so this is probably the most personal question I'll ask you. Um, there are places here where you have an aside like, and then at the rally, you know, he attacked me, uh, you know, and, and then he claimed I said this, which, I, you know, th there are these asides. And so from one end, you're getting this abuse from this, you know, one of the most powerful figures in the world. And on the other hand, I see on Twitter, you're getting attacked all the time as though you're a Trump shill. Uh, it's not how I you know, read your reporting at all. And yet, and so I feel like just as a personal matter, how have you navigated these last, say, six six years uh, and, and what's coming? You must have a uh, constitution of steel to be able to, I mean, I think I would be <laughs> aggravated all the time. It, it, I mean, people are allowed to interact with the coverage how they want to interact with it. I, I try to stay focused on my job. It, it just is what it is. And what about the attacks from the president? Is it, is it, or the former president? Does it make it harder to cover? Do you find yourself second guessing your, no. you know, what you write? No, because Donald Trump says that things that are true are not true all the time, and so no, it, it does not. Okay, so we've talked about the Democrats talked about the press. I want to now talk about social media. Uh, Trump was saying a lot of inflammatory things. He's claiming the election was going to be rigged. 
Um, he's calling for wild protests. Uh, this is all before January 6th. And Twitter and Facebook don't decide to uh, deplatform him until we, we have the violence of January 6th. Uh, how much do you think social media mattered to Trump's popularity? And we're speaking on uh, October 27th. I think tomorrow the deal for Twitter closes. Elon Musk is uh, going to presumably buy Twitter tomorrow. And he said that he would bring Donald Trump back. Does that matter going forward? So it's funny, Donald Trump has said he wouldn't go back to Twitter, which I have a hard time believing. Just want to asterisk that. Um, uh, I think he will find a way to go go back, uh, especially because his own social media site seems pretty imperiled, the financing behind it. Um, I don't know what Elon Musk taking over Twitter is going to look like. I don't, there's a, there is, you know, clearly a lot of anxiety out there on Twitter among the left about him taking it over. I understand why. That said, um, people's anxieties are not always facts, and I don't know what this is going to mean. Um, Twitter is already a pretty hostile, often fact-free landscape. So, I mean, I saw that he he had some line where he was like, "It can't be a free-for-all hellscape." Well, that he said to his What is it? What is it now? I mean, right? But but what is it now? I mean, it's it's not exactly a place where there are uniform rules or where people, you know, make sure that they're following best practices on, on stating facts. I mean, I, I had a situation where someone, um, uh, it's the one comment that I'll make in your, in response to your question about criticism, someone offered up their, their view of what I was likely going to be covering going forward. And it was literally made, just made up out of whole cloth and a reporter at a, at a like an actual reporter who's veteran reporter inserted that into their column as if it was fact without checking with me without whatever but it was because the person who made the assertion is someone who who's known to journalists and and so and it it was it's a very very toxic place it could certainly get more toxic but it's not like it's a garden of eden right now but i don't know what that means i also think that there is clearly an ongoing debate about free speech um you know versus hate speech and we'll see what that looks like in an elon musk era and uh, do you have any different thoughts on Facebook? And just to give background for those who don't know, um, initially, uh, Trump was removed for an indefinite period of time by Facebook after the oversight board, which Facebook created as kind of its Supreme Court, ruled and said, you got to put a time frame on it and give some standards. Facebook said, uh, OK, two year um, suspension and then we'll revisit. Do you have any sense of one, what Facebook might do, and two, whether Facebook matters for Trump in the same way that Twitter matters. Facebook actually um, matters more in a lot of ways because it, it's a place where he can advertise. And I suspect that will impact their decision as to whether they want him back on, but because we'll, they are having financial struggles now that they're known as meta, but we'll see. Uh, you know, I don't have any inside, uh, inside insight into whether that will happen, but it certainly seems like it's possible. And it was very impactful for him when he was taken off and, you know, um, he would like to be back. So there's that. Um, I, I want to just raise one point that I didn't raise on your point about Twitter and frankly about Facebook. I don't know how much any of these folks are going to be bearing in mind that he posted an anti-Semitic screed on his own social media website a week ago where he told U.S. Jews to get their act together uh, and basically support him, quote unquote, before it's too late. Now, who, who knows what this means. It, uh, there's obviously, you know, a history of threats with Jews in the world that's going to sound very scary. Either way, it is um, 
normalizing anti-Semitism. And I, I don't know how much, if at all, that will factor into social media sites, considering whether to let him back on. It's interesting that you said, you know, you were saying that maybe some of Facebook's decision is driven by potential advertising revenue. I, I was thinking about it a slightly different way, which is if Republicans take control of the House, then in terms of the kind of investigations they could do and legislation they could propose, Facebook has certainly been, although they say they want regulation, they certainly don't want certain kinds of regulation. And so that might also, I think, potentially have a have an impact there. Possible. We'll see. I mean, I also think that we haven't mentioned the other aspect here, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Rick, but I don't think any of these social media companies are relishing the idea of the oversight they're going to get from House Republicans. And so, and investigations next year with, with a likely House majority. And so I think that could impact what they do too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question for me. And then I want to turn to the audience questions, which is if Donald Trump disappeared from the political scene tomorrow, you know, he's, he retires from politics, goes off to Mar-a-Lago. What do you think the Republican Party would look like in five years? Uh, has he made change that's going to be lasting? And given you know, the topics I'm most interested in, what would it mean about trust in elections going forward? So if Trump's not fanning the the election denialism flame, does it go out or does it continue to grow? Um, I think it will be at a, at a hinge moment. And I think that if you know there is somebody who can appeal to aspects of the Republican base, but who is less caustic, then I think it will simmer down. If somebody, you know, believes that the only way that they're going to win is to continue what Trump is doing, then it will continue. And I think that's, you know, we've seen the market is the, the voter market is going to bear a lot on that front uh, on the Republican side. So I, I just think it's too soon to say who would have thought five years ago the Republican Party was going to look like this. Right. Yes. So I just I have no idea what it's going to look like in five years. Uh, you know, one question is whether others could pull off the kind of coalition that Trump was in? No, I, I think the answer is no, um, which is sort of what I'm getting at. But candidates come along and they surprise you. So it's possible. Who do you think is the heir to Trump? If Trump retired tomorrow, would it be Carrie Lake, DeSantis? Yes. Like who, who, who is the one? It would, it would be Carrie Lake. She's yeah. much more purely him, not the least of which is that so much of the way that voters have experienced her is through television over time. Right. All right. Let me turn to some of these questions before we have to let you go. First question, to what extent do you think candidates like Trump, Sarah Palin, and others are motivated simply to make money and exploit celebrity and influence as opposed to be able to wield political power? Is that a significant part of what was going on, what is going on? I mean, Palin was a governor, so it's a little different. I mean, she came into the system through the system. Trump did not. Trump thought about running for president for 30 years because it was the height of attention. And, uh, you know, so I think I think being a star is what drives Donald Trump. Um, and yes, and yes, power and money and so forth. I would urge you to read an exchange that I had with him to this end about why he ran for president uh, in Confidence Man. Yeah, there was also this maybe you're referring to the same part of the book or maybe a different part where he talks about other rich people. But they that's don't it. Have... Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that was, it was a really striking thing to yeah. say. Yeah, I was um, really I was really stunned by it. You know, uh, it, it kind of reminded me when I was I wrote a book on Justice Scalia a number of years ago, and 20 years after he's on the Supreme Court, he's complaining about not getting into Princeton as an undergraduate. And um, I mean, some of the Trump complaints kind of read the same way. It's like, you know, the, the, but, that, and that, but that's also I mean, that's more, Rick, I would say a little more of a common, I mean, the sort of chip on a shoulder about not not getting the kind of respect that one thinks they're due and then accomplishing it later is pretty common. And I do think Trump has some of that. 
But he also has this other piece, which is what you were just referencing, where he literally said that he would run for president again because the way he looks at it is he has so many rich friends and nobody knows who they are. And that's very different. That is literally just, I must be known. Okay, the next question asks about the back to the 2016 campaign. Trump was clearly a flawed candidate, the questioner says. Uh, that said, why do you think he was able to defeat Hillary Clinton, who obviously had a lot more professional experience uh, as, a, a, as a politician than a, an office holder? Because she was a really flawed candidate, too, just in different ways. And, and she was also a woman, and sexism is, is pretty rampant nationally. But in addition to the challenges of running as a woman, which are very real, um, she had been in the public eye for 30 years. She was a very polarizing figure. Her, her disapproval was higher than her approval. Um, and, um, and she did not run a good campaign. That's, it's just the reality. And he, at various points in 2016, and I know people don't like hearing it, but he outworked her, uh, particularly in the, summer, in the summer month of August and the beginning of September. So someone asked a follow-up to your answer about the rallies being covered unfiltered and asked whether there should be, written media should include more, you know, I don't know, full transcripts of his rallies. I'm not sure what that would mean. I don't know how that would look in a newspaper. Um, you know, I don't even really know how that would look at a on a website. Um, you know, I think that there should be, cause I mean, he now talks for like two hours when he does these rallies. So I don't know how that would work. I do think when we do interviews with him, that the fullest transcript possible is really important to run along with the story. And I guess today, uh, thanks to changes in media, you can hyperlink to full text or you to can. video. You can. Uh, do you think that changes your reporting on, on this stuff, knowing that people can get? No, I was access? I was hugely in favor of this in 2016, <laughs> running transcripts. We, David Sanger and I, my colleague, who's the premier foreign affairs specialist at the Times, and I did two interviews with Trump on foreign policy. And I was very encouraging that we run the transcript of both. Um, and in one, I think we ran a partial transcript. The other, we ran pretty close to full uh, and, and they were eye-opening. I don't know if you've had a chance yet to listen to the Bob Woodward uh, recordings. I think he released eight hours of recordings. Um, think that's a good thing to do? Uh, should these should should reporters be like posting their, their rough audio? I think it depends case by case. I can't speak for, you know, why Bob did this or, or, or whether it was wise um, or the timing of why he did it now, as opposed to a couple of years ago um, when he did the interviews. I, I just, I don't know. I think, I think it's to each his own. I don't think there's one set way. I do think it is important for people to hear how Trump talks. I think that's important. Because it um, gives them the context. Yeah. And because, you know, while there, he says a lot of, a lot of things publicly that he also says privately, um, the way in which he tries to sell reporters, I think, is itself revealing. Uh, and one of the things, you know, he, I think he does with reporters and others is he's able to speak with a kind of innuendo. Uh, you mentioned this tweet about uh, American Jews, mm -hmm. uh, you know, before it's too late. You know, obviously, there's ways of having deniability about yep. that. Is that a particularly difficult thing to cover? So I didn't mean that, you know. In well, I think that he, what he, the way I write about it is that he, you know, speaks in these generalities and he's very hard to pin down. And then he leaves himself these outs so that if you, if the reporter leans in too far describing what he's saying, uh, he then says, no, 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 you're wrong. And he uses that to blow the whole thing up. Okay. Another question here asks about um, what Trump spreading conspiracy theories on Twitter tells us about the First Amendment. Um, given how conspiracy theories spread, does that should that cause us to rethink 
our commitment to free speech? Um, no, I mean, I think that free speech means that, that everyone gets free speech. Um, you know, I think we've seen the a corollary is the Sandy Hook trial, right? Where Alex Jones is, is now heavily indebted through liability to the families of these dead children who he insisted were, were crisis actors or weren't really. And so, you know, there is the ongoing tension in society of when free speech collides with hurtful speech or hate speech or, or harmful speech. But I think it's a slippery slope when, and I'm not, I, Sandy Hook case aside, that's, I'm putting that, that's a different bucket. Um, but broadly, I think it's a slippery slope when people start trying to police speech. The same, people, the same people who are trying to say that Trump should be able to say whatever he wants, his supporters often try to police the speech of others. So we do have other defamation suits uh, related to the election, including some of the voting machine companies going after yep. Fox and OAN and, and yep. Newsmax. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not a judge and I'm not a jury, so I, I can't speak to that. But, you know, that the other part of our society is people have the right to do that. Do you think that the social media companies were right? I, mean, I don't think they had, a, had any constitutional obligation to keep Trump on at all. They could include or exclude whatever speech they want. But do you think they drew the line in the right place, let, leaving him on before January 6th, even when he was calling for wild protests and then taking him off after? I, I don't see how you kick a U.S. president off of Twitter. I, I think that's uh, when he's in, in office, um, mm-hmm. although they obviously ultimately did uh, after the riot. But I think prior to that, I, I think it. I think it's a. I think they were dealing with a really difficult situation. Uh, but do you think they made the right call on January sixth? I, I think that they made a defensible call. I mean, I'm not going to opine on whether they made the right decision or not. But I, I think that, um, given what had just happened, it was uh, defensible. Okay. Last question for you: Could you critique your own past coverage of Trump? Is there anything in retrospect that you wish you would have done differently? There are a number of stories that I would go back and do differently. Um, but in the main, uh, I'm, I think our coverage was rigorous and I think that we gave voters a pretty clear sense of who Donald Trump was. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, uh, uh you know, the, the, one area of cover- two areas of coverage that I wish had been different, and this is not, this is just broader for, across media. One is I, I wish there had been more coverage of his business ties in 2016. I just think we had never experienced a president with this kind of uh, potential conflicts of interest. Um, and I, I think that there should have been more coverage of that across the board. And then I wish there had been more coverage of agencies um, and sort of less on what he was doing day to day throughout the presidency. But I, you know, I think it's understandable given how unusual what we were covering was. Well, I think, you know, I was getting a breaking news alert every two hours at some points during the Trump presidency. There was not much more news that could have uh, even been out there. Well, okay, the book, one last time, is Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America by Maggie Habern. Thank you so much, Maggie, for joining us. Thank you. The ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UCLA School of Law, but I'm solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB podcast is Melody Rowell. The theme music for the ELB podcast is a composition jazz by the band BFN, used under Creative Commons license. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time.